Well, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I have a theme word for each year to guide me in some of my decision-making. Can you remember what that word was? No? Okay, that's all right. The word for the year I said was watch, uh, with the letter W standing for watch your life and doctrine closely from 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we're going through. And afterwards, a couple of people asked me what the other letters stood for, because each one stands for a different thing. And well, there are two things that the letter A in watch stands for, uh, and one of them is the word assumptions. Uh, assumptions. And we can easily make assumptions about others uh, and about ourselves that are not actually true. But we can also make assumptions about God that are not true. And when we act on those assumptions, it leads to all sorts of disappointments. And as we explore this passage today, let's see what it says about avoiding the wrong assumptions about God and about ourselves. And last week we saw how God designed a place for people to live in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, And but Adam and Eve, in effect, they said uh, to God, yeah, we hear what you're saying about the best way to live, but nah, we're not listening. Yeah, nah, uh, as we say in Australian culture. And they made the assumption that their plans were better than God's plans. And as their descendants, all of us, all humanity is tainted by the consequences of their choice. We can no longer live in the place that God had designed for us, in the presence of God. And the rest of the Bible is a search in one way of how God's people can once again be living in the presence of God and enjoy the blessings of his rule. And key to that was promises God made to Abraham about being a great nation, living in the place that God designed under God's rule and blessing. And after escaping from the brutality of slavery in Egypt, through God's powerful acts of redemption, the descendants of Abraham are on their way to this promised land, the blessing of a place to live and call home. And on the cusp of entering the place that God designed for them, God takes the second generation aside and gives instructions on the best way to live in the land. And this is through a series of sermons that Moses gives, and that's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's what Deuteronomy is about, this series of sermons to the second generation. And the first sermon Moses gives today is today's two-part modern history lesson in chapters 1 to 3. And the first part up to chapter 2 verse 1 focuses on the first generation's reaction to God's plans to provide for them. And the second part, from chapter 2, verse 2 onwards, is about the second generation's react, reaction to God's plans to provide for them. Now, I'd, I'd love to be able to speak on all of it, but we'll be here all day. So today we're just going to focus on the first generation, uh, because in the weeks ahead we'll be able to focus on the, the second generation a little bit more. Now, if you remember from last week, we saw how on the way out of Egypt, the people had a stopover on the way to the promised land, not a stop over at the survey to fill up with petrol as we do on the way to Canberra or wherever we're going, but they had a stop over at Mount Sinai or Horeb uh, as it is known in the book of Deuteronomy. And it was here they, they received the Ten Commandments. And it was at Horeb that today's history lesson begins. And you can see it in verse 19 there. Verse 19 uh, of chapter 1. Uh, then as the Lord our God commanded... Uh, commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. After a gruelling 11-day journey uh, through a waterless limestone plateau of about 160 k's, about the distance from here to Newcastle, uh, they arrive at a place at the, on the edge of the promised land and 
This was initially meant to be the launching pad for their entry into the promised land. So far, so good, 11 days in. The people received more commands, verse 20. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This great vision of the land lies before them and God has provided everything they need to take them home. Well, despite God's reassurances, he has already gone before them. The people still send some people in to check out the land for themselves. They don't actually trust that God has gone before them. And good news and bad news come back with these spies that they sent into the land. And the good news is that the promised land was in stark contrast to this dreadful wilderness that they had just come through. Verse 25 says, Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Wouldn't expect anything less. Wouldn't go, this is a bad land, actually. God's giving this dodgy land. No, it's a good land. But the bad news is in verse 28. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Now, despite having the reassurance of God's promises to them that there is no reason to be afraid or discouraged that God was giving them the land, verse 26 outlines their response. Verse 26 says, But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And in effect they said, Yeah, I hear your plans, God, but nah, we don't like your plans. Your way of doing things. And look at the fascinating detail in verse 27. There's some fascinating little snippets here, and one of them is in verse 27. You grumbled in your tents. You grumbled in your tents. I don't know about you, but there's always the temptation to go home and grumble. They grumbled in their tents. We grumble in our homes, or we grumble in our cars on the way home from church, or whatever the case may be. But when we grumble in the echo chamber of our immediate household or group of friends, or when we ruminate in our minds as we try to get to sleep, we can easily lose perspective. And look at the assumptions this led to in verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Now, you've probably heard the expression, uh, seeing through rose-coloured glasses. Have you heard that expression before? Rose-coloured glasses. It's about having an idealistic and an unrealistic view of things. But there is the other extreme where your perspective is always distorted by the negative that leads to unhealthy assumptions. Like, I'm not a natural at many things, but uh, with my cynical negative nature, I'm a natural at uh, seeing, uh, seeing through what we would call grey-coloured glasses. That comes naturally to me. And uh, the Israelites seem to be making assumptions through grey-coloured glasses when in panic they ask in verse 28, 
Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. But being the clear man of vision that Moses is, wearing neither rose-coloured glasses nor grey-coloured ones, he tries to bring some perspective. And he commands them in verse 29. Not a suggestion, a command. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. But I can imagine the people retort by saying, oh, it's all good and well to say that, but give me one good reason why I shouldn't be terrified or afraid. One good reason. Well, verse 30 is that reason. Verse 30 says, the Lord your God, your God, who is going before you, will fight for you. And just in case that wasn't reason enough, he tells them to look at God's track record of trustworthiness. His track record. The Lord, your God, will fight for you as he did. As he did. As he did for you in Egypt. Before your very eyes. And in the wilderness. Egypt in the wilderness, before their very eyes. They've already seen the way that God has provided for them. And in verse 33 adds this detail. He went ahead of you so on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. The very ground that their feet were standing on as they grumbled in their tents was chosen by the Lord. So there's a bit of a how much more sense going on here. They saw firsthand how they, how, how, how they made it out of Egypt and through the dreadful wilderness. If the Lord did all that, through the Red Sea, out of Egypt, how much more, how much more are they going to make it through the challenges ahead? And although they had lost so much perspective in their grumbling to the point that they accuse God of hating them. There is this tender image here of love in verse 27. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. And as I say this, I look up the back and Jasper standing there carrying his son in his arms, that tender Tender care. Then you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Let me pause and ask for a second. Do you sometimes struggle with seeing things through the perspective of grey-coloured glasses? Are you ever tempted to confuse a trial you are going through or some kind of challenge with a feeling that somehow God hates you? We may need to be careful about not making assumptions about each other. But equally so, we also need to watch out that we don't make assumptions about God. Assumptions that can lead to what verse 32 speaks of. Verse 32 continues, In spite of this, in spite of the reassurance of God's word, 
in spite of life's lessons of God's strength and protection that you've seen with your very eyes. Moses tells the people, you did not trust in the Lord your God. Ironically, although their grumbling was murmured in the privacy of their tents, look at verse 34. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore. No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he, will, uh, the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And because of you, the Lord became angry with me also, said Moses, and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. So God ends up giving the people what they have chosen. Only two of them will make it home to the land that God had promised, Caleb and Joshua. And as their leader, Moses, is also identified with the failure of that generation. And we'll talk more about that in the last sermon of the series. But the people thought that their plans were better than God's plans and that God couldn't be trusted to lead them home. So he gave them what they asked for. They didn't enter the land. Now, we all struggle to live with the consequences of our bad choices in life. We all make bad choices at times. We all struggle with the consequences. We have to live with those consequences. Israelites were no different, and they are faced with the harsh reality of the consequences of their choices in verse 40. But as for you, verse 40, turn around. Set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Sometimes in life, against better judgment and against the wise counsel of others, we make stupid choices. Sometimes to avoid the consequence of the first choice, we make another dumb choice. And in thinking that the Lord their God is there to assist them in their plans, rather than to lead them with his plans, the Israelites went on to make another dumb choice in verse 41. Then you replied, oh, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God has commanded us. The swing from defeatism to triumphalism is swift here as they make another assumption. This time it's an assumption about themselves. So every one of you put on his weapons thinking it easy to go up into the hill country, thinking it easy. It's the very opposite of what they were afraid of earlier in the passage. But, verse 42, but the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, said Moses, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country 
the Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. And, and look at this humiliating image here. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. The same place where they started. It's a pretty sad, sad state of affairs. And it conjures up an image of people paralysed by regret about the past and petrified with fear about the future, but refusing to trust God's way forward. Do you feel that way sometimes about some of the choices that you've made in life, some of the choices you're facing? You're paralysed by regret from the past or you're petrified with fear about the future? Maybe you feel the full weight of verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, Then we turned back and set out towards the wilderness, along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Now that would have this verse would happen. It would have to be one of the most powerful images of disappointment in the Bible. Let the weight of those words sit for a moment. We turn back. We turned back. There was so much promise, so much opportunity on the edge of the promised land. Where did it all go wrong? If only I had done this. If only I had listened. It's so close yet so far. Why did I think my plans were better than God's? How do you deal with the disappointments of life? When life hasn't turned out the way that you planned? Or life took a direction that you were not expecting? Last week we talked about God taking us on a journey, a journey through the book of Deuteronomy. And in our lifetimes that journey is going to include the reality of disappointment. The journey through the wilderness rather than life in the promised land kind of disappointment. Maybe the disappointment is a direct consequence of the choices that we have made in our lives. We have to live with the consequences. We've made those choices, we live with those consequences, but we can ask, is, what is God teaching me in this? Or maybe like Caleb and Joshua, the disappointment comes from living with the consequences of someone else's sinful choices in life. The wilderness of disappointment is a reality for all of us in different ways. And it could tempt us to make an assumption about God that is not true. It could tempt us to make an assumption about God that somehow God hates us that he despises us, that he's out to get us. Or maybe we think that we are a lost cause, that there is no hope for the future. 
But as much as verse 1 is one of the most depressing images in the Bible, verse 2 is one of the most hopeful. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around the hill country long enough. Now turn north. Think about those words for a moment. Now turn north. There is hope. Regret and fear don't need to be the last word, for God's plans include hope. Hope that the wilderness is not all there is. And for the Israelites who died in the wilderness, the promised land was only meant to be a taste of what it was pointing to, a home with God in heaven. And as we live with regret about past choices, a fear of the future is not the way it needs to remain. And one important part of that is not falling into the trap of making an assumption about that God hates us, that God doesn't want us to make it home. We avoid that assumption by reminding ourselves of what God has already done, by reminding ourselves of God's track record, not our own. While Moses pointed them back to the great act of redemption in Egypt, we can look back at that great act of redemption at the cross, where Jesus died in our place to deal with the judgment that we deserved for the sinful choices that we have made. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Let's not, let's not make false assumptions about whether God loves us or not. The cross is a clear demonstration that he does. But the reality is that although we have experienced God's provision in the past, he's strengthening and he's enabling, experiencing it doesn't seem sufficient when our anxiety in the moment darkens those memories of God's provision at the cross and through our lifetimes. And so we need to be constantly reminded of God's provision in Christ. That's part of what we do when we gather together. We constantly remind, remind each other of what God has done for us. We need to keep looking back through history and reminding ourselves of God's track record as it's recorded in the scriptures, of his provision throughout the Bible culminating in the cross. But we can also take a look back through our own history and remind ourselves of our personal experience of God's track record of provision as well. Let me finish with this. Short story, once when Liz and I went to visit a Christian widow in a home, she took us on a guided tour of her house and she was pointing out all the pieces of furniture and telling stories about the pictures on the walls and it was, it was fascinating. But the thing that I found the most fascinating was a little section in her study in front of her desk, stuck there haphazardly, it was all sorts of scraps of paper pinned into the wall there with different Bible verses on them each one telling a story of a different time in her life when that was significant and meaningful. Each scribbled Bible verse, each printed one, it was testimony of God's track record in her life. And as she faced the challenges of widowhood ahead, it was God's way of reminding her, do not be terrified. 
Do not be afraid. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us a reason not to be fearful about the future and all the challenges that lie ahead. We thank you that your way into the ultimate promised land in heaven is through the Lord Jesus. Help us not to assume that we can get there off our own back, but only through trusting in Christ. Thank you that you lead us home as a father carries his son. May we be a people that don't make assumptions about you or ourselves that are not true. Help us to always remind ourselves of your track record of provision in our life and through the scriptures. For apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.